Well, Christine, um, colleagues, I'm so honored and really deeply moved to have been asked to give the Cook Lectureship uh, this morning. So thank you, I'm extremely grateful. I thought I would take a little moment of time to talk about Dr. Ron Cook. Um, this lectureship was established in his name and he was the first pediatric surgeon in Hartford, Connecticut. He was born in 1919 in Newport, Rhode Island. He got his BS degree from Yale where he played varsity football, sorry, baseball. <laughs> he went to Yale Medical School, did a three-year pediatrics residency at Yale and at Strong Memorial prior to entering the Army where he was initially at Walter Reed and then worked on a hospital ship. He did his general surgery training at Yale, pediatric surgery training with Dr. Robert Gross at Boston Children's Hospital, and then practiced pediatric surgery in Hartford for 30 years. He was the past president of the New England Pediatric Surgical Society. And the Cook professorship was named in 1985. If you look at the people that have provided this lectureship prior to today, it's a who's who in pediatric surgery, and I'm really humbled to even be included in this list, and I think I will be the 33rd Cook professorship. So this is an illustration of a newborn with necrotizing enterocolitis, and you can tell from the number of lines, tubes, and drains that are in place that the baby is quite ill. There's abdominal distension, and if you could look inside the abdominal cavity, you would see several dark, dusky, injured areas of bowel that are afflicted with necrotizing enterocolitis, and hopefully some viable bowel as well. The inset at the top shows that there are bubbles of air trapped in the bowel wall, known as pneumatosis intestinalis, and there may be bubbles of air in the portal vein as well. To treat this, medical management includes withholding of feeds, um, emptying enteric contents with a nasogastric tube and the administration of very strong antibiotics. And with that therapy, some babies will get better, but others will go on to require surgical intervention with resection of the diseased bowel. And even if the surgeon resects the diseased bowel, the morbidity and the mortality of the disease is extremely high. So the first baby that I ever took care of with NEC was in 1989. Baby, when I was a surgical uh, pediatric surgery fellow. Baby boy Lewis was born at 900 grams in size, which in those days was really quite small. He developed necrotizing enterocolitis, got worse, and surgical intervention was needed. We resected the diseased bowel, and he actually did quite well, and he survived. And we patted each other on the back, and we said, this is just great. And I thought it was the best case I ever did. And I can tell you all these years later that if I never have to operate on one of these babies again, I will be extraordinarily happy. So let me give you a more recent case. Brandon was the second attempt at in vitro fertilization. He was delivered by stat C-section due to decreased fetal heart tones, and his mother suffered an amniotic fluid embolus and arrested in the delivery room. Amniotic fluid embolus is extremely rare and occurs when amniotic fluid and fetal cells enter the maternal circulation. The maternal mortality is 80%, and most of the few mothers that survive are left with severe neurological deficits. However, Brandon's mother was resuscitated and she made a full recovery. Brandon was born at 26 weeks gestation, weighing 910 grams. He did well for the first five weeks, but then he developed feeding intolerance with residuals, emesis, and abdominal distension, and an abdominal film showed free air. 
A surgery consult was obtained and a peritoneal drain was placed. You can see the drain in the uh, picture in the upper right abdomen with an illustration on the bottom showing that this drain enters the right lower quadrant and hopefully will drain the abdominal cavity. Well, the next day I was on call and I recognized that he had advanced neck and he clearly wouldn't survive without surgery. And so we performed surgery at the bedside because he was too ill to be moved and 50% of his entire small bowel needed to be removed. This left him with 50 centimeters of small bowel, including the ileocecal valve and the colon, which were viable. And you can see the challenge that the surgeon is presented with when we have to operate on one of these babies. A jejunostomy was created and later was closed. He was initially extremely ill, but he eventually slowly improved and he survived. However, he has multiple post-operative complications, including hydrocephalus, cerebral atrophy, and he's clearly quite debilitated. So although Brandon luckily survived, he has multiple morbidities, and a significant proportion of babies with necrotizing enterocolitis never even make it out of the hospital. So one of the earliest reports of neck that I was able to find was in 1965 from Babies Hospital, Columbia. And they described 18 premature infants who developed neck between 1953 and 63 at Babies Hospital. They described a syndrome consisting of prolonged gastric emptying, apnea, abdominal distension, vomiting, GI bleeding, peritonitis, and shock. They stated that the etiology was unknown that pathogenic bacterial agents were not consistently found, that it was most common in premature babies weighing less than 1,500 grams, and they described ulcerations, inflammation, pneumatosis, perforations, especially in the terminal ileum, followed by the colon. And they stated that surgical intervention was indicated for perforation. If you pick up an article on necrotizing enterocolitis in modern times, you would see a very similar description. So despite over six decades of research, the morbidity of neck remains unchanged and for the extremely low birth weight baby is as high as 50%. So sadly, neck is still a disease for which there's currently no known cure. This is what those nurseries looked like in the 1960s. There was the iron lung, there were babies lined up one after another. Mothers had to peer through glass partitions because they weren't even able to hold their babies. And contrast that with what a modern neonatal intensive care unit looks like these days. And think about a disease that was first described in the 60s and has a very similar morbidity and mortality nowadays. If that was the case for heart disease or stroke or any other major disease that adults are afflicted with, it would be a disaster. So there are several potential therapies for necrotizing enterocolitis that we've investigated in the laboratory over the years. First, we initially looked at growth factor therapy. A growth factor is simply a protein that stimulates cells to grow or to proliferate and to move or to migrate, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. We're currently looking at stem cell therapy for neck and also a novel method of probiotic delivery to treat the disease, and we'll talk about one at a time, and let's start with growth factor therapy. So you heard that I did my pediatric surgery residency in the laboratory of Dr. Judah Folkman at Boston Children's Hospital, who was really one of, he was the, the discoverer of the whole concept of angiogenesis, and his whole work revolved around growth factors. And when I was a resident in the lab, I serendipitously identified a novel growth factor known as heparin-binding EGF-like growth factor, or HBEGF. And this is the secondary and the tertiary structure of the growth factor that, that was identified. And if you look at the number of HBEGF publications since our initial one in 1991, they've increased over the years, and they include papers showing that HBEGF protects the brain from stroke, 
the heart from myocardial infarction, the kidneys, bladder, and liver from injury, but importantly to us as surgeons, HBEGF protects the intestines from various forms of injury, including necrotizing enterocolitis. So in our lab, we have multiple animal models of intestinal injury, including a model of neonatal necrotizing enterocolitis, which we'll discuss today, and also models of ischemia reperfusion injury, hemorrhagic shock and resuscitation, cecal ligation and perforation, radiation therapy-induced injury, and a model of intestinal and anastomotic wound healing. And we've been able to show that HBEGF protects the intestines from injury in the first five models and promotes intestinal and anastomotic healing in the sixth model. So this is what our experimental neck model looks like. Um, pups are delivered prior to term via C-section. They're then exposed to repetitive episodes of hypoxia and hypothermia, and with the administration of very high calorie feeds and a dose of lipopolysaccharide, they develop an injury to the intestines that's very reminiscent of the necrotizing enterocolitis that we see in the operating room. When we give uh, growth factor therapy like HBGF in this model, we simply add it to the feeds that the small little animal receives. And we can perform this model in newborn mice as well as newborn rats. This is the histologic injury grading system that we use where grade zero is normal intestine. Grade one is epithelial cell lifting or separation just at the villus tips. Grade two is necrosis to the mid-villus level, grade three necrosis of the entire villus, and grade four is transmural necrosis. And we define any injury of grade two, three, or four as consistent with neck, and we describe injury of grades three and four as consistent with severe neck, the kind that would be very clinically relevant at the bedside. So what we're looking at here is an image, or images of scanning electron microscopy of the lining of rodent intestine, and in the panel on the left, you can see the appearance of a breastfed animal with normal villus architecture. In the central panel, you can see the significant villus destruction in an animal exposed to our experimental neck model. And in the panel on the right, you can see an animal exposed to the same degree of injury, but with HBEGF simply added to the feeds. And you can see that there's significant preservation of the villus architecture. And if you look at even higher panel magnification, you can see that attached to the surface of the injured villi are numerous bacteria. And those are the bacteria that are going to invade through the wall of the injured intestine into the bloodstream and they'll set off the systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And that appearance was never seen in either breastfed animals or in animals exposed to experimental neck, but with HBEGF added to the feeds. And what we're looking at here is the microvascular <coughs> blood flow to individual villi. The blood flow is shown in green, and the intestinal epithelial cells are stained in red. You can see in the panel to the left that in a breastfed animal, there's normal microvascular blood flow to the villi. In an animal exposed to our experimental neck model, there's significantly decreased blood flow. And in an animal exposed to neck, but with HBEGF added to the feeds, there's increased blood flow. In fact, the blood flow to the animal treated with HBEGF was even better than the blood flow to the villi in a breastfed animal. And that led to a series of experiments that showed to us that HBEGF is a potent vasodilator that promotes intestinal microvascular blood flow. So over the years, we've conducted numerous lines of experimentation to try to figure out the exact mechanisms by which HBEGF exerts its potent intestinal cytoprotective effects. And you can, we're not gonna go through these, but you can see that there are many beneficial things that it does. 
but we wondered if maybe some of its action was due to the ability of the growth factor to protect intestinal stem cells. And to look at that, I want to take you through this beautiful video that was produced by Dr. Hans Klevers in the Netherlands. And it shows us the activity that's happening in the crypt villus axis. So this is the lining of our intestine. And at the very bottom of the crypts are these important intestinal stem cells. And in this video, those intestinal stem cells are stained in blue so we can see what's happening to them. They begin to proliferate where they form something called the transit amplifying compartment. And those cells then continue to march up the crypt villus axis where they start to differentiate into all of the different intestinal epithelial cells that line our intestine, including absorptive enterocytes and mucus producing goblet cells and so on. Those differentiated epithelial cells will then continue to march up the villi until they get to the tips of the villi. And when those differentiated cells get to the tips of the villi, they undergo a process of apoptosis or programmed cell death, and that's how intestinal homeostasis is maintained. So to look at that again, we can see the blue labeled cells at the base of the crypts, and those cells will go on to differentiate into all of the different intestinal epithelial cell lineages, including mucus producing goblet cells, hormone producing enteroendocrine cells, absorptive enterocytes, all of which march up the crypt villus axis, and they also differentiate into antibacterial protein producing panath cells, which will go down the crypts to reside in between those important stem cells to protect those stem cells. So we wondered whether the ability of HBEGF to protect the intestines might be due to its ability to protect those important intestinal stem cells. And to look at that, we used special transgenic mice known as LGR5 EGFP transgenic mice, which have overexpression of fluorescent labeling only in their intestinal stem cells. And we used those mice in our necrotizing enterocolitis model. On the left, you can see very easy identification of the green fluorescently labeled stem cells in an animal that's breastfed and uninjured. In an animal exposed to neck, it's very difficult to find any viable stem cells. But in an animal exposed to the same degree of injury, simply with HBEGF added to the feeds, you can once again find easy identification of those very important intestinal stem cells. So this showed us that part of the way that HBGF protects the intestines from injury is due to its ability to protect those very important intestinal stem cells from injury and to keep them alive. Well, armed with all that information, we were really excited. And years ago, we went to the Food and Drug Administration, we showed them all of these data, and we asked if we could have permission to begin phase one clinical trials of, of, of HBEGF to try to prevent extremely low birth weight babies from developing necrotizing enterocolitis. And we actually got FDA approval to do so at that time, but we learned a lot of really valuable lessons. First, we learned that for new drugs, the FDA requires studies in adults, generally, before they will allow studies in babies. And HBEGF is extremely expensive to produce, and that was cost prohibitive. There's always going to be concern regarding growth factor therapy for any disease because growth factors have been implicated in tumor formation, and we certainly wouldn't want to save the life of a baby only to have them develop a tumor later on. But we found the ability of HBGF to protect intestinal stem cells really quite intriguing. And we asked ourselves if HBEGF could prevent neck by protecting those intestinal stem cells from injury, then could administration of stem cells possibly protect the intestines from neck? And that brings us to the second area that I wanted to talk about today, stem cell therapy for neck. 
So as you know, a stem cell is a very primitive cell that has the ability to self-replicate. They differentiate into multiple different tissues. They fight apoptosis or programmed cell death, and they can reduce inflammation. If you take a stem cell from a very young embryo, a five to seven day embryo, that cell has the ability to form every single tissue of the human body. If you take stem cells from older embryos, four to six weeks of age, those cells are pluripotent and they can form many different tissues, as can certain adult stem cells. And if you take some adult cells and reprogram them into something called induced pluripotent stem cells, again, those stem cells can differentiate into all of the different tissues of the body. So there are many different groups that are very intensely looking at the ability or the potential to use stem cells in diseases such as stroke or traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injury, myocardial infarction. And the question that we're wondering about is could stem cell administration be useful in prevention of necrotizing enterocolitis in premature babies? So we became very interested in the enteric nervous system. And as you know, this is located in the wall of the intestine. It's the largest and most complex division of the peripheral nervous system, and it's responsible for intestinal motility, absorption, and secretion. The enteric nervous system consists of ganglia that contains neurons and glial cells, and those neurons are responsible for GI motility, and the glial cells contribute to postnatal neurogenesis or the growth of no new neurons. Interestingly, ablation of those glial cells leads to intestinal inflammation that's very similar to the necrotizing enterocolitis that we're familiar with. As clinicians, we recognize that enteric nervous system immaturity in premature babies leads to poor intestinal motility, and some believe that this might actually increase the vulnerability of those patients towards developing necrotizing enterocolitis. In addition, intestinal dysmotility is common after neck and suggests that the enteric nervous system is actually injured during the acute neck process. And so that led us to do a series of experiments looking at human tissue removed in the operating room for necrotizing enterocolitis and age-matched tissue that was resected for other non-neck causes. And to summarize the findings from those experiments, we confirmed that enteric neurons and glial cells are in fact injured during both human neck and in our experimental neck model. Fascinatingly, these abnormalities persisted even months after survival from the acute disease when the patients were undergoing stoma reversal in the operating room. And that made us wonder whether transplantation of neural stem cells might be useful in protecting the intestines from neck. So neural stem cells in the intestine can differentiate into enteric neurons and into glial cells, the two important cells that comprise our enteric nervous system. So to look at neurotransplantation, we isolated neural stem cells from the intestine of embryos. We grew them in culture to obtain a lot of neural stem cells. And then we either transplanted those neural stem cells directly or we genetically engineered those neural stem cells so that they would overexpress high levels of HBEGF. We then transplanted those neural stem cells into the peritoneal cavity of animals prior to exposing them to our experimental neck model. And the conclusions of those experiments were that administration of neural stem cells protects the enteric nervous system from histologic injury, preserves gut barrier function, increases intestinal motility, and increases survival. 
If we administer HBEGF by adding it to the feeds at the same time as we administer neural stem cells intraperitoneally, we can even get better protection of the intestines from that. And if we genetically over uh, express HBEGF in those neural stem cells, we get really significant protection against necrotizing enterocolitis. So that led to some publications showing that neural stem cells do in fact protect the intestines from NEC. We had many more publications showing that mesenchymal stem cells can protect the intestines from NEC. And different groups in the United States were looking at different types of stem cells, but nobody ever really asked the question of which is the best stem cell to use. And as I showed you, there are many different types of stem cells in our body, many different locations of stem cells in our body, and we asked which type of stem cell might best protect the intestines from neck. And to answer that, we harvested amniotic fluid from embryos, and we utilized it to grow amniotic fluid-derived mesenchymal stem cells and amniotic fluid-derived neural stem cells. We then harvested bone marrow, from which we grew bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells, and we harvested the intestine from very young embryos to derive neonatal enteric neural stem cells. So we have four different types of stem cells to look at. We proved that those stem cells actually express the markers that we expect them to express depending on which type of stem cell it was. We proved that those stem cells could differentiate into multiple other different types of cells, like osteocytes on the left, and, uh, sorry, uh, those were adipocytes or adipocytes on the left and osteocytes on the right. So they have the ability to differentiate. And then we looked at those different types of stem cells in our neck model. So on the y-axis here, we're looking at the incidence of neck. And you can see that in breastfed animals, they have no necrotizing enterocolitis because they're non-injured. In animals exposed to our experimental neck model, significant histologic injury occurs. But if we expose animals to that same degree of injury and treat them with any of those four different types of stem cells administered intraperitoneally, there's roughly equivalent protection of the intestines from neck. So all the stem cells seem to be um, acting similarly. We next looked at gut barrier function. And so we used our regular experimental neck protocol, but after 48 hours, we delivered a very large molecular weight molecule into the stomach, and it then disperses through the intestines. And um, if the lining of the intestines is injured, then that large molecule can get out of the intestines and into the bloodstream, and we can quantify the amount of it that gets into the bloodstream, and the higher levels in the bloodstream are indicative of gut barrier failure. Another way of looking at it is here you can see an individual villus, and it's lined by a single layer of epithelial cells. And those epithelial cells are very tightly aligned with each other so that nothing in the lumen of the intestine, like bacteria or their noxious products, can get through into the bloodstream. But if you have gaps in that epithelial cell lining, then bacteria and their harmful products can be absorbed through the intestinal lining and into the bloodstream. And similarly, if you give a very large molecule, it's called FD70, into the lumen, again, that molecule can be absorbed through the lining of the intestine into the bloodstream, and you can measure its levels in the bloodstream, which is exactly what we did. So here we're actually looking at gut barrier function. Um, as represented by absorption of that large molecule into the bloodstream. So the higher the levels, or the higher, or the taller the bars, the worse is your gut barrier function. So first, we see intact gut barrier function in an animal that's breastfed and uninjured. There's significant gut barrier failure in animals exposed to experimental neck. 
But if you expose those animals to NEC and treat them with any of those different types of stem cells, there's significant preservation of gut barrier function. So we showed that stem cells can, in fact, protect the intestines from NEC. We showed that stem cells can be administered either intravenously or intraperitoneally, and interestingly, they preferentially engraft into injured intestine, but not non-injured intestine. But we always found that the degree of engraftment was relatively low. If you give HBGF enterally at the same time as you give the stem cells, you do get some increased stem cell engraftment. And if you overexpress those stem cells to produce HBEGF in high levels, you get better protection of the intestines from neck. And again, the different types of stem cells had roughly equivalent efficacy in protection of the intestines from neck. But stem cells also have been implicated in tumor formation, which is problematic. We found that when we administered the stem cells intravenously, many of them were trapped into the lungs, whereas we want them to be in the intestine. And always in our experiments, the degree of engraftment of those stem cells was relatively low. And that made us wonder whether mechanisms other than stem cell engraftment may actually be mediating the beneficial effects of those stem cells. And so we began to look at little particles known as exosomes. The conventional mechanism of how one cell interacts with another cell involves something called paracrine effects, where one cell secretes soluble proteins that then bind to receptors on adjacent cells to stimulate beneficial effects. And for paracrine effects to occur, stem cell engraftment into an injured tissue would have to occur. But it's becoming increasingly recognized that exosomes, tiny little particles secreted by cells such as stem cells, may actually mediate cell-cell communication. So exosomes are bilipid membrane, tiny little vesicles, 330 to 100 nanometers in diameter. They contain microRNAs, messenger RNAs, DNA, and proteins. And they can exert either local or even remote effects on recipient cells by circulating throughout the body. And these tiny exosomes are present in blood, urine, saliva, and breast milk. And for stem cell, um, for, for exosomes to be mediating the effects of stem cells, engraftment of the stem cells into the injured tissue wouldn't even be required. So we hypothesized that perhaps exosomes are mediating the ability of those stem cells to protect the intestines and the enteric nervous system from neck. And just to give you an idea of the size of these particles, you can see the tiny little exosome on the left compared to the size of an average cell, which is on the right. So these are very small mediators. To look at these exosomes, we labeled them with a red fluorescent dye so that we could track them. We then administered the exosomes, either intravenously or intraperitoneally, into our animals before we exposed them to experimental neck. If you um, resect the intestines and lay them out and then examine them by fluorescent imaging, you can see that those red-labeled exosomes have actually gotten into the areas of intestinal injury. And here in these histologic sections, again, you can see those red-labeled exosomes are actually present in the neck-afflicted tissue. So what we're looking at here is histologic injury. And again, in a breastfed animal, there's no injury. In an animal exposed to experimental neck, there's significant histologic injury. And in an animal exposed to neck, treated with either stem cells themselves or just the exosomes from those stem cells, we get equivalent protection of the intestines from neck. And if you look at grade three and four injury, the most severe forms of injury that would be really clinically relevant at the bedside, we see a very similar pattern where breastfed animals have no neck, animals exposed to injury have neck, and animals exposed to injury treated with either stem cells or the exosomes from those stem cells have equivalent protection from neck.
And if you look at gut barrier failure, essentially the same pattern. Breastfed animals have intact gut barrier function. Animals exposed to neck have gut barrier failure. And animals exposed to neck treated with either stem cells or stem cell-derived exosomes have intact gut more intact gut barrier function. And in this experiment, we looked at exosomes from many different types of stem cells. Animals that are breastfed have no neck. Animals exposed to injury have neck. And animals exposed to injury but treated with exosomes from several different types of stem cells have roughly equivalent um, protection uh, by virtue of administration of those exosomes. And recently we have an ongoing project which is uh, nearing completion where we administer a dose response curve increasing doses of exosomes and you can see that as you move to the right with more, higher and higher doses of exosomes you get better and better protection from neck. So to summarize our exosome studies, we found that stem cell-derived exosomes do engraft into injured intestine. They're as effective as stem cells themselves in protecting the intestines from neck, and perhaps they may represent a novel, non-cell-based future therapy for necrotizing enterocolitis. So how would that work? Amniotic fluid could be harvested at the time of amniocentesis in the delivery room. Those amniotic fluid cells could be cultured in mesenchymal stem cell induction media to obtain um, amniotic fluid-derived mesenchymal stem cells. And those stem cells could then be frozen and stored for future use. Those mesenchymal stem cells or their secreted exosome products could then be administered to ultra-low birth weight babies to protect the intestines so that they don't develop the appearance of necrotizing enterocolitis that we're familiar with these days. Well, it's become apparent to me that to treat the most vulnerable patients that we take care of in our neonatal intensive care nurseries, we really need to find a therapy that is generally recognized as safe by the Food and Drug Administration. In other words, something that they won't have any possible complaints about. And so that leads to the third thing I want to talk about, which is a novel method of probiotic, deliver uh, probiotic delivery. So you're all very familiar with probiotics. You can get it in multiple different forms in any health food store or any grocery store that you walk into. And our question is, could probiotics possibly be the answer to necrotizing enterocolitis? So it's clear that the pathogenesis of neck is multifactorial and there's a lot going on. But I think that most would agree that altered intestinal microflora plays a great role. And in fact, a, uh, a very recent paper from uh, Washington University by Dr. Barbara Warner and her colleagues um, proved that intestinal dysbiosis is associated with the development of neck in premature babies who are destined to get the disease. So we wondered whether the altered intestinal microflora in babies with neck could be prevented with administration of probiotics. And let's go through a little bit of terminology to begin with. So a probiotic is a live microorganism which when administered in adequate amounts confers a health benefit to the host. On the other hand, a prebiotic is a compound that stimulates the growth of the probiotic bacteria and the prebiotic is non-digestible by the host. And symbiotic therapy refers to giving a prebiotic and a probiotic together. So probiotics are health-promoting bacteria that counteract the negative effects of the altered intestinal microflora that's present in many different diseases. 
There's, um, there are studies that show that there is a decreased incidence and severity of neck in infants treated with probiotics, but the results are really quite variable. Animal models have begun to elucidate the mechanisms by which probiotics can protect the intestines. But there are many challenges for probiotics. First, none of them are FDA approved for administration to babies. The formulations are not regulated, and typically all that you know is the number of actual live bacteria per dose that's being provided. There's many different formulations, as you know. There's varying efficacy in each individual that receives the probiotic. And there's difficulty for the probiotic to actually colonize the intestines for many different reasons. First of all, they have to overcome the very low gastric pH in the stomach. They have to fight against the host immune system, which wants to remove them. And they have to fight against pathogenic or commensal organisms that are already present in the intestine. And the appropriate dose and frequency of, of probiotics that we need to give is completely unknown. Adding symbiotics, adding prebiotic therapy to the probiotics rarely adds improvement over probiotics alone. And the reason for that is there are many challenges for these prebiotics. First, these are orally consumed compounds that frequently don't reach the target where you need them to be present. They're significantly diluted as they go through the GI tract, and they're unlikely to benefit probiotic bacteria unless they're administered in very high concentrations. There are also limits to limitations of probiotic administration specifically for patients with neck. First, in all of the studies where they have any type of efficacy, they must be given at least daily or in multiple doses a day. And several case reports of bacteremia from the living probiotic organism that was administered to treat the baby have been recorded in the literature. And probiotics don't really significantly alter the host microbiome. So we wondered whether we could improve the way we deliver probiotics to protect the intestines from neck. And that leads to a novel probiotic delivery system that we have been um, looking at most recently. So in all of the clinical studies to date, probiotics are administered in something called their planktonic state or their free living state, individual bacteria. But as you know from, from being a clinician, Bacteria like to live in a biofilm state. So a biofilm is a microbial community surrounded by DNA, proteins, lipids, and oligosaccharides. And if the bacteria are in this biofilm state, they have increased stability and increased activity. And we're very interested in a bacteria called Lactobacillus ruteri. It's a gram-positive facultative anaerobe, but it does tolerate air. It's found in many food and milk products. It converts sugars to lactic acid, and it's a very common gut microbe in most mammals. It has antibacterial properties and anti-inflammatory properties, and the bacteria that we're looking at was originally derived from human feces, and it's available commercially. It produces reuterin, which is a very strong antibacterial, which inhibits the range, uh, inhibits the growth of a range of bacteria of gram-positive, negative, uh, and fungi, etc. So the delivery system that we use involves the following. We take the free living bacteria, we grow it briefly in the presence of biocompatible microspheres, and here what you see is in the panel all the way to the right is one individual microsphere, and on the surface of that microsphere are numerous bacteria that have adhered to the microsphere surface. And when that adherence occurs, the bacteria are stimulated to produce a biofilm. This is what the microspheres look like. They're made of cephidex, 
And some of you may know Cephidex because it's used in size exclusion chromatography. Those microspheres are present in multiple different sizes, and it provides a surface on which the bacteria can attach and lay down um, uh, their products. And there's precedence for use of these microspheres in medical therapy to date. These are biostable. They're produced by good manufacturing process quality, meaning you can give them to human beings. And they're currently being used as a dressing material called Debrisam. They're, they've been injected into the anal area to treat fecal incontinence in a product called Celesta. And the urologists use this to treat vesicoureteral reflux by injecting it into the junction of the ureters with the bladder. So there are patients who have had these microspheres injected for years and years, and they're very, very safe. So what you see here is a central microsphere, and on the surface of that microsphere are growing many green fluorescently labeled bacteria. So the microspheres provide a surface by which those um, lactobacilli can adhere and lay down their biofilm. In addition, those microspheres can be filled with many helpful compounds. And then dilution of those helpful compounds through the wall of this porous microsphere can act directly on the bacteria that are um, stuck on the microsphere surface. Those microspheres can be loaded with beneficial cargo, including glycerol, which will increase its, the, um, the antibacterial protein producing capability of the bacteria. We can load those microspheres with maltose or sucrose, which will increase biofilm formation. And we could load them with histidine to increase the anti-inflammatory process. So what you're seeing here is a lactobacillus ruteri, a bacteria, and on its surface is an enzyme called the GTFW enzyme, and that enzyme is responsible for biofilm formation. If maltose is present, the maltose acts as a substrate of that enzyme, so in the presence of maltose, there's more biofilm formation. Similarly, sucrose induces the expression of the enzyme, so in the presence of sucrose, once again, you get more biofilm formation. Here, what you're looking at is one microsphere, and on its surface are many lactobacillus ruteri. And they've laid down a little bit of biofilm shown by the green staining. But if you fill those microspheres with sucrose, you get a lot more biofilm as shown by that green staining. And what could be more generally recognized as safe by the Food and Drug Administration by sucrose, which is simple table sugar? So we hypothesize that lactobacillus ruteri, grown on sucrose-loaded or maltose-loaded microspheres and administered in a biofilm state, might produce superior and longer-lasting beneficial effects even after just one single dose administration. So here we are with our neck model again, and you can see that in uninjured breastfed animals, there's no incidence of neck. In animals that are exposed to neck, treated with either the microspheres alone or the bacteria alone, there's no protection. If you injure the animals and treat them with lactobacillus on empty microspheres, they make a little bit of biofilm and there's a little bit of protection from neck. But our best results are in animals that are injured, treated with lactobacillus ruteri on either sucrose or maltose-loaded microspheres, where they produce more biofilm, and we can virtually almost eliminate the disease with even just one single dose treatment. Again, a similar pattern if you look at gut barrier function. Breastfed animals have intact gut barrier function. Animals exposed to neck have gut barrier failure. Lactobacillus ruteri alone uh, improves gut barrier failure a little bit, but the best results are with, with lactobacillus ruteri on microspheres that are loaded with either sucrose or maltose. And to show that the biofilm is really what's important, 
We did the following experiment where breastfed animals had no incidence of neck. Animals exposed to neck have injury. Animals exposed to neck on, uh, with lactobacillus ruteri on either sucrose or, or maltose-loaded microspheres have the best protection. And if we take away the ability of that lactobacillus to form a biofilm by genetically engineering the bacteria so that they can't make much biofilm, we start to lose protection from neck. So it all you know, seems to fit. And so the conclusion of our probiotic studies was that a single dose of lactobacillus ruteri administered as a biofilm, decreases the incidence of neck and preserves gut barrier function. Lactobacillus ruteri grown on either sucrose or maltose-loaded microspheres have improved resistance to gastric acid, a better ability to bind to intestinal epithelial cells, they begin to be able to colonize the intestine, and they further decrease neck incidence and improve gut barrier function. So we hope that optimizing delivery strategies may significantly improve the ability of probiotics to protect the intestines from neck. And importantly, the microspheres that we use and the prebiotics we, that we use are all generally recognized as safe by the Food and Drug Administration. So we hope to have a meeting with the FDA in the first quarter of 2018 so that we can go over these results with them and hopefully be able to um, ask for phase one uh, clinical trials. So as clinicians, we always think of biofilms as our enemy because it stops us from treating infections. But in this case, I hope that we can think about um, biofilms as our friend. So I hope, uh, it's been about 30 years almost since I first treated baby boy Lewis. Um, and unfortunately, we're still operating on these babies today. But it's my hope um, that with some of the things that we're looking at in our lab and in many other labs that are run by really, really smart people across the country, I hope, and I remain optimistic, that we can find some type of a cure for this disease. And I just wanted to take the last minute to talk about mentoring, because without really good mentors, I wouldn't have been able to do any of the work that I've been able to do today. And so I encourage all of you in the audience to have mentors. And frequently, you need more than one mentor. You may need a clinical mentor, and a research mentor, and a lifestyle mentor, whatever you want. It's really important to have mentors. Um, there was an interesting article in the Annals of Surgery in 2016, so very recently, about the future of basic science in academic surgery, and they wanted to identify barriers for success of surgeon scientists. An online survey was distributed to 2,500 members of the um, Association of Academic Surgeons and the Society of University Surgeons to determine the factors that impact our ability to do basic science research. They look at, look at publicly available data of NIH funding, and what they found was a 27% decline in NIH funding to surgical departments between 2007 and 2014. And if you looked at the impediments to the surgeon's ability to do uh, research, there was pressure to be clinically productive, excessive administrative responsibilities, difficulty obtaining extramural funding, and a desire for work-life balance. And the conclusion of the study was that these barriers need to be addressed to ensure the continued development of future surgeon scientists. And there was a really interesting editorial in April last month in Nature entitled, More Surgeons Must Start Doing Basic Science. They say they don't have the time or the incentives to do research, and that's dangerous for translational medicine. And the conclusion was that policymakers must create a healthcare environment in which hospitals have incentives to think of patient care as inevitably linked to science and to stop seeing surgeons as easy sources of revenue. 
But that's not going to be happening anytime soon. In the meantime, and at the very least, funding agencies should make it less burdensome for busy surgeons to apply for grants, and in response, academic surgeons should apply more often and thus increase their chances of success. So if there are any of you in the audience that have an interest in doing either clinical research or basic science research, look at something called the K Awards by the NIH. And if you look at the um, success rate of K Awards, which is the red line, you'll see that over the years, it has remained relatively stable. And the people at the NIH really do want to fund young, basic, uh, and clinical investigators. And if you don't apply, you'll never get a grant, so I would just encourage you to, you know, to think about that. So in the Folkman lab, I discovered HBGF, but it wasn't the best discovery I made, because the best discovery I made was I met my husband in the Folkman lab, and we're still married.